Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. I'm Valerie, and this is episode three. Hi, everyone. I'm Bree. So glad to be back. Valerie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, we are recording this just before the Christmas holiday in 2021, if you're listening later. Um, we were originally supposed to be launched by now, but we had a couple technical errors. So <laughs> what you can't see is that I am wearing my Merry Christmas, you filthy muggle sweater, jumper. Should I call it a jumper? Uh, how about you? How's it going? Yes, it's good. It's good. Uh I still have some Christmas shopping to do, as always. I always think I'm going to be the person that has like, you know, everything done in like November. And I tried. I had like sticky notes all over my wall of all the people I was going to buy for. And here we are, the what, 21st? And I still haven't bought anything. That seems very Luna of you. (laughs) Yes, yes. Actually, you know what? I have your gift, but it'll probably be like weeks before I mail it. So just, you know, expect it in like January. I didn't know we were doing gifts. Now I've got it. I'm like that CVS ad or Walgreens ad or whatever it is where they're like, <laughs> it's the, oh no, I didn't realize we were doing gifts this year thing. Okay. All right. I, I've got ideas. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually your editor. So she started it. My editor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Or not your editor, your writer. I'm your editor. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, moving on, let's jump back into the wizarding world. We're on these muggle issues, like buying gifts for people we love and not remembering to buy gifts for people we love. Okay. So today we are covering just two chapters. So unlike the first few episodes where we did three chapters, this time we're only doing two. And we've pretty much broken up Deathly Hallows into anywhere between two and four chapters each episode. So it's going to range each time, kind of depending on what the topics of the chapters are, how long they are, because we want to try and make this a very digestible, enjoyable, less than an hour long podcast every single week. Um, I know some people love like two hour podcast episodes, but I personally, even on time and a half speed, which I listen to everything, I still need them to be a little bit shorter than that. So this week we are covering chapters 31 and 30. And do you want to give us a recap of chapter 31? These were very uh, sad chapters, but I guess we are at the, uh, you know, the end of the last book. So what happens? So basically, the Battle of Hogwarts, chapter 31, Voldemort speaks to the castle and tells him they have until midnight to give them Potter. But instead, the castle all fights so that he has more time to find the Horcruxes. In the beginning, actually, he ends up realizing it is, in fact, the Ravenclaw diadem and heads to the Room of Requirement. Ron and Hermione are missing until he ends up finding them from the dungeon where they were getting the Basilisk Fang. Inside the Room of Requirement, they find the diadem, but of course, it's like a last hurrah for the them to have a confrontation with Draco, Crab, and Goyle. They're waiting for them. Uh, they start the fiend fire, fin fire, which ends up killing the last Horcrux and Crab. All right. And I totally forgot to mention, in case you're a new listener this episode, we are reading the book backwards. So that's why you're going to get a chapter <laughs> summary and we're moving backwards through chapters. And I said them in a 
backwards order. Anyway, I will remember to do that in future episodes. Um, the other thing that we do is in addition to having a summary of the chapter, we always read the last sentence of that chapter before reading the chapter. So we're moving backwards in time. So let me read that last sentence. And this is a heartbreaker. I apologize to the audience for mm. dropping you in on this one. It, it was a hard one to start with. And Percy was shaking his brother and Ron was kneeling beside them. And Fred's eyes stared without seeing the ghost of his last laugh still etched upon his face. Oh, yeah. That sentence kills I me. Know. When I had to read that to start the research for this episode, I was like, I hate starting with this one because <laughs> I know how it ends <laughs> from the way that the last chapter began. <laughs> I know, I know. Poor Fred. Yeah. I mean, I get, I know, like, she must have felt like she had to, somebody had to be taken out from the Weasley clan. But, like, really, the twin? Yeah. The twin? That's, uh, that's so And that's up. after George has been, George has been grievously injured in this book, too. It's, like, a very right? hard, the Weasleys were very lucky to make it this far, but still. Yeah. I was going to say, I do love the line, though, the ghost of his last laugh still etched upon his face. You know, of course, you know, Fred would, he was laughing whenever it happened and he was having a joyous moment. So I guess there's that. Yeah. And I actually thought it was an interesting choice of the word ghost, because we do know that there is this sort of magic around who becomes ghosts and who doesn't. And it maybe sort of is an illusion that there's a possibility Fred might be a ghost. And I I can't remember if we discussed that in a past episode. I I definitely thought about it, whether or not Mm -hmm. any of these people who are going to die in literally this chapter would come back. And as we know from having read the rest of the book, they don't. But I think that that word was a, a specific choice to put ghost of his last laugh. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Can you imagine Fred as a house ghost? Like, how fun would that be? Yeah, Peeves would have competition. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for sure. But he'd be much better at it. You know, Peeves is more like obvious with his jokes where I feel like Fred would, there'd be a little more intricacy to his, uh, his ploys. Yeah, for sure. And this is a huge chapter, by the way. That's why we only did two in this episode, because this chapter Mm -hmm. is almost yeah 30 pages 30 pages long and it is so densely packed so did anything jump out at you as you were going through this chapter yeah so they're in the the main room and I found it kind of interesting how the three houses or the four houses but the three houses they how far they've come throughout the book and you know we don't necessarily know this yet and I will be kind of watching how the houses how they act towards Harry and act towards the other Gryffindors because what happens is Basically, you hear a voice and you hear Voldemort say, hey, we want, I want Harry Potter, right? And the three houses, they end up jumping up to protect Harry. But what I noticed is automatically my mind was kind of biased that Slytherin was like, oh, I pictured Pansy and Slytherin all jumping up. But it doesn't say that. The text just says that Pansy Parkinson jumped up and the three houses, the other three houses did protect Harry, but Slytherin didn't all try to attack him. It was just the one. So I found that interesting as well, where my own bias kind of steps in and assumed it was Slytherin versus the three. But I just love that the three houses in general, I don't think probably the first five chapters that wouldn't have happened because the other houses still weren't sure about Harry. They weren't sure how they felt because they weren't sure, you know, were the things that Rita was writing about him true? You know, were was he who shall not be named really back where now... They're just there to protect him and back him. And I, yeah, I kind of love that. It's very interesting because I think in Goblet of Fire, we see that the houses align themselves. Actually, there's several times it happens. They align themselves with Gryffindor only when it 
kind of like is against Slytherin. <laughs> and this is not the same, yeah. <laughs> that's not the same dichotomy we're having here. This is Voldemort. It's a very different level of evil, mm-hmm. you know, if, if Slytherin is the, the bad house. I definitely agree that I think she does an interesting ch- choice here in the characters she picks for different lines of dialogue in this particular scene in the Great Hall. Mm-hmm. So in addition to flagging Pansy Parkinson as the one who stands up, which means, and maybe we can assume that Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are not in the room. They're not in the Great Hall because they've already kind of snuck away to try and keep an eye out for Harry when he tries to defeat Voldemort. They don't really know how, but that's what I would presume because they're not involved in this at all. You don't ever hear about them. The other character that jumped out at me was the very first character to speak, the very first student to speak is Ernie McMillan. Um, And he says, and what if we want to stay and fight? And I think that she made that character Mm. choice on purpose because Mm -hmm. Ernie was the one who doubted Harry in Chamber of Secrets. And I think she particularly thought back to what, and admittedly, he was in Dumbledore's army from day one. I did go check that in Order of the Phoenix. But I thought she probably looked at (laughs) like, what characters in these other two houses do I have to work with to show how far they've come in addition to how far Harry's come? And I think that Ernie is the one who says he wants to stay. It's not an an accident. Nothing she does does in the books is an accident, but it says that Mm-mm. though he doubted Harry as a, as a child, as a man, they, he respects him and he wants to help and like defeat Voldemort just like Harry does. Um, several things in the, in the mm-hmm. chapter jumped out at me like that, where she makes very particular character choices. Yeah. That's a very good catch. Oh, another thing that I caught. And I, I think having reread it a couple times, it makes a little more sense than when I first read it as they're assigning the tasks for the defenses of Hogwarts. Um, it turns out that they yes. give, Fred and George defenses of the passageways into the school. And at first when I read that, I was like, wow, that's like a really important job. But then I realized it's more like they know all the passageways, right? Because they had the Marauders map for years. You know, when Fred right. when Fred volunteers to do that job, it's because he's literally, he and George know it better than anyone, like except Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, right? Like they know how to get into this school any other way. Now, presumably, I, I believe we heard or we're going to hear, I can't remember where it happens in the book, the school is sealed off. The only passageway in and out, it was sealed off by the Caros, who we haven't quite, I don't think we met them yet at this point, because they're already, we're, I'm losing track of where we are in the book at this point, too. There's so much happening. Um, but anyway, Fred and George are, are charged with defending the castle through its secret passageways, which I think is a really cool responsibility for them. And it kind of suits them really well. Yeah, yeah, I actually, I, I noticed that as well. And I thought it was, it felt interesting to me that Fred and George would separate, though. And I get why, but it seems out of character for them. They are just always together. So I thought that was, and it's also obviously sad. They never do that. And of course, then when that happens, yeah. Fred Fred dies without his brother. Do we see George during the battle at all? I don't remember that. I don't think it, I think it's not, yeah, I don't think you're right. I don't think we know anything about what happens to him in the battle. Mm. It's not until Harry comes back mm-hmm. and he sees everyone, you know, huddled around Fred and you see George holding him and his dad holding him. Ugh. Yeah. depressing. I don't want to go. I don't want to go back over <laughs> that. Christmas. Can't do this. No. <laughs> um, another thing I loved was, and we talked about this in the last episode, in episode two, was uh, Professor Sprout uh, and Neville mm-hmm. seizing loads of plants to fight with, um, using herbology yes. as a magic of battle. I think it's such a cool concept. And I know, like, it, that we're recording this now, and the Fantastic Beast franchise is still going on, and we kind of see how a, a Hufflepuff who loves herbology and magical creatures could yeah. use that as a defense magic or a, an a attacking magic. But like, I don't think we really get a sense of that in these books. And I just love seeing it here at the end that this kind of lame, this lame 
branch of magic is actually pretty cool and used effectively in the battle. Right. I think he even says, like, I'd like to see Slytherin up against a, you know, insert a plant. Like, it just was very cool. Yep. Yep. Um, And moving forward, um, as you covered... There's Harry's like running around trying to find Ron and Hermione, trying to find the diadem. We're going to talk a lot more about the diadem when we jump back one chapter. There's Mm -hmm. the room of requirement where there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the room of requirement. And I think it's very interesting, first of all, that most people who encounter it never realize it does more than one thing. Like to understand that the room does more than one thing is a very unique knowledge. Like I don't, Voldemort doesn't know that. Malfoy doesn't seem to know that. Um, Harry knows it. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore didn't know it. So the fact that they can use it in multiple ways is such an advantage. But I loved when you have all of these important kind of third and fourth wave characters. I don't know, wave tier. They're they're not the primary characters and not even secondary. (laughs) Like Neville's grandmother appearing in the room of requirement, right? Like that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of Neville's grandma, uh, page 624, I was just one of my my favorite parts. Neville's grandma, for one, shows up to fight, which is amazing because we don't really know much about Neville's grandma, except for the fact that she's like kind of scary, right? Yeah. She raises Neville. You don't really feel much love from her or anything like that, but she ends up being very proud of him. And well, and earlier in the book, we're going to discover that she's been on the run because the Death Eaters came for her. So she's like a very oh, cool witch, that's right. but she's an old woman. Yeah, yeah. And so we kind of get that juxtaposition. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, she asks, um, have you seen my grandson? And Harry says, he's fighting. Naturally, said the old lady proudly. Excuse me, I must go and assist him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. And then with surprising speed, she trotted off toward the stone steps. Yep. She's great. She's great. (laughs) Yes. Another good Neville moment. I mean, come on. We're the Neville fan club. We just misnamed this podcast. I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) But we wouldn't have (laughs) been the Neville. I mean, it would be fun to read the Harry Potter series just paying attention to Neville straight forwards but it's from reading it backwards that he's really jumped out as this such an important character so i look forward to seeing as his role changes in importance how how we can kind of keep an eye on him what other exciting moments did you find so let's see on the very next page i think this is an example of something you mentioned in one of the first two episodes about the levity when she brings in that sense of levity um when she finally has ron and hermione kissing and they get so involved in it that harry has to yell at them to get their attention (laughs) to go back to the important stuff which is like defeating Voldemort. please can we get back to that though i do love i do love the sense and i think that especially now we're recording this almost two years into covid it's an interesting way to think where he, he goes, Harry says, there's a war going on here. Ron and Hermione break apart. And Ron says, I know, mate. So it's now or never. Um, that idea that when you're in mm. a stressful situation, you should embrace those opportunities that you've maybe been waiting for or um, which are very important to you that you didn't realize until you were in that moment. Anyway, I just kind of like that now or never, right? Like, yeah, they should have a good kiss. I mean, they should get back to work also, but like, yeah. give it, give them a moment, <laughs> Harry. Turn, Give them a moment. Turn your back, you know? <laughs> Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. You know, speaking of Ron and Hermione, I didn't notice this before, but so Harry is by himself. He hasn't caught up to Ron and Hermione. And there was a sentence and basically it says without Ron and Hermione to help him, he could not seem to marshal his ideas. So it's I like how we're getting those those moments to show like, yes, this is about Harry, but it's about so much more. And he constantly had people in his life to help him. And that was 
so important. That's why he ended up defeating Voldemort, because he had this circle of love and these people constantly that were a part of his, you know, that were the team, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like that personally. Like, I need people to talk through things with to come to conclusions. I mean, yesterday, you and I spent how long talking about Instagram reels and stuff? And then I had still had to (laughs) talk to my husband about them. So I totally get that. But when you're just like in your own brain all alone, it's hard, especially if you're stressed out, it's hard to think clearly. Sometimes you need to be able to express it to another person who's looking at it from a different perspective. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. And I really like that phrasing that she used there. Um, okay, I have a question for you. How do you say the summoning spell? Oh gosh, give me the page. 627. It's in italics in okay. my copy. Oh God. How do you pronounce that? Because I think we pronounce things differently and I want to call that out because we we're tracking things and we're going to do a bonus <laughs> episode about the different ways we say stuff. <laughs> Accio diadem. Okay, so that's how you say it. So I don't know where I got this from. But I say Asio. And I know it's not right because <laughs> okay. I, do, I don't speak Italian, but I have Italian family and I know a double C makes a hard K sound. I can't say it that way. It just, I don't know why. Maybe it was the audiobooks that I listened to growing up. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's always been Asio. They don't say it that way in the movies. Anyway, that's going to be on the list. We can, we can do some research into like, we'll both say it the way we say it. And then we'll look up like literally how should these letters be pronounced? And we'll have a whole episode about all the different things. I've been tracking them. We say several different things differently. I love that so much. And I only laugh not because of how you pronounced it, but also how you pronounce it. I'm like a child. You said ass. So I'm like, oh, oh, sorry. just don't worry about me. I'm amateur. It's fine. I don't, I, you know what I'll do? I can't actually. I have them on on recorded tape. I can't listen to them anymore. They're just like on a bookshelf, a relic oh. from a bygone era. I might be able to find an old copy, maybe from the library that I can listen to it, the Jim Dale version and see yeah. how he pronounces it. It might not be my fault. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Actually, that's something I always recommend. I don't know if you do this, but get a make sure you have a membership to your local library and then download the app Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. This is not promoted. I just want people to know because I think it's so cool. I'm constantly downloading audiobooks or Kindle books from the library. And so you could just go and see it's available and download it and check it out. Oh, that's cool. I was just picking up books from my library yeah. this morning. Oh, we are library patrons. If, if the National Library Association of whatever uh, wants to sponsor, we're yeah. totally down with that. <laughs> All right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was such a kid, like a nerd at the library, like going every summer. I would go. I rented movies. I bought books. I did. I thought the library was so cool. Obviously, I was not. <laughs> I volunteered at the library. Oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. I'm yeah. so jealous. When I was too big to do the summer reading program, I volunteered to help kids get the stamps on their summer reading programs. <laughs> yep. I loved it. I loved it. I just oh, got to I sit like there and read all day. Then I worked at a bookstore. Yeah. Then I worked at a movie theater because you just got to see movies all day. I just have been in this this world of books and movies and so much of it with Harry Potter for a very long time. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. I love it. All I right. love it so much. What else? Um, what do you what else you got? Yeah, you know, I think overall what this chapter and what these past chapters have been kind of showing us is and we know this, but it's pointed out more and more to me as I reread it, is Voldemort's ego is essentially what causes his demise. You know, he constantly assumes, oh, no one will know about this. No one knows about the rumor requirements. You know, no one knows um, where I used to live. So they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know about my my past to know that I would hide something there. And yeah, I just, I find that so interesting that it's Harry's almost like humbleness that helps him win, where it's Voldemort's ego that causes him, you know, his demise. Yeah, I just looked it up. Um, The word that comes to mind for me is uh, hubris. His just confidence in his mm. ability and his magic that nobody could possibly be as, as magical as he is. And I think they even talk about that in the the flaw in the plan, which we've already covered, that 
he says, you yeah. know, Voldemort says to Harry, you assume you have a better weapon than me or you know more magic than me. Those are the only two things he can conceive of for being defeated. And it's like, there are plenty of other ways to defeat you, mostly because you just assume that nobody has anything better than you when they certainly could. One thing that jumped out at me, I'm kind of in, in the grain, in the details still of this chapter, um, is cr- crab. Let's talk about crab for a minute. Because I am actually pretty, I'm okay with him dying. Like, I don't like a character dying ever, right? Theoretically, even evil ones. I don't love it. I mean, Voldemort can go. That's fine. (laughs) But he cast the killing curse, not once, but twice. So this guy, even if he had survived, should be going to Azkaban. Like, he is just, I mean, and I get, I get we're going to get to a point where Harry also casts an unforgivable curse. We're going to cover that in this uh, episode. But I just am like appalled that this kind of dim-witted, not very magically competent person, his immediate response is such violence. And it just makes me wonder, like, like Malfoy, he was raised in a household with a parent, at least one parent who's a Death Eater. We know that Crab Senior of whatever his name is, is a Death Eater. But like, his first reaction is killing curses, really. And that just, it just appalls me. I can't. I'm okay with it. Right. And in that same moment, you can see, not that same moment, moments before, Literally, Malfoy has to keep saying, hey, guys, he has we have to bring Harry to the Dark Lord alive like you idiots. Like, no, like we can't kill him. Can you guys please rein it in? But interestingly enough, and I don't know if for some reason maybe Malfoy saw Goyle or what it was, but the first thing he says is, where's Crab? Crab. So I don't know if maybe he liked him more because maybe he was a little better at magic or... If it was just a coincidence, but I found it interesting that he immediately asked where Crab is. Yeah, and that's where Goyle was. He just says, "Where's Crab?" Well, he knows where Goyle is because Goyle gets carried out by Ron and Hermione. But also, like, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose if they were my friends for years, but I mean, they've been friends the three of them, presumably actually since childhood, like like before Hogwarts even yeah. potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I I think it's a very interesting way for this particular character to end. And he's like way down on my list of important characters. But if you're gonna kill a bad guy. I think that, I don't know. I think I'm okay with this one. <laughs> I don't know. We were talking about all these different character yeah. choices she makes. She could have killed, she really, she could have killed Goyle and she didn't. She chose Crab. But she makes a good case for mm-hmm. that. He's not a good wizard. He's not a good man. Yeah, and Ron's not very upset either. No, he's like, he's, eh, I would be upset, but he tried to kill me, so. Pretty mean about it. But pretty, I mean, they're in a yeah. battle. That's the cost of battle. Um, there was one sentence yeah. that jumped out at me for just being beautiful. In my book, it's page 633. Uh, Here we go. All around them, the last few objects unburned by the devouring flames were flung up into the air as the creatures of the cursed fire cast them high in celebration. Cups and shields, a sparkling necklace, and an old discolored tiara. Just a beautiful sentence. Mm -hmm. Those jump out at me. I like to mark Mm -hmm. them just so that we we highlight when she drops those little gems of like beautiful imagery into our eyeballs and then into our brains. Yeah, which she does so, so well. Yeah. You know... Another thing I liked about this chapter was, or about probably just the ending in general, is we're wrapping up a lot of characters and we're learning even more about some of the very, like like you said, the three, third layer, fourth layer of characters. So we learn about the story of the Bloody Baron and, of course, uh, the Ravenclaw ghost, right? Yeah. That's um, we in, learn, which is such a tragic story. Is that in this chapter? Is that all in this chapter? Oh my gosh, it is. This is such a big yes. chapter. Yeah. I know it's huge. You know, we find out that she she left because she wanted the crown and she got mad and the bloody baron goes to get her because her mother is dying and he, he ends up killing her, which is like, what? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty intense. Like 
She's like, oh, he's hot, hot headed. Like that's more than hot headed, but okay. And then, you know, he's obviously so remorseful and he, well, not remorseful, but he feels so bad. He kills himself too. Um, and that's why he has the chains is he wants to, it's his penance for it, which is like, oh, wow. Way to wrap that up and kind of clue us in on some of the ghosts. Yeah, actually, this is, this chapter is interesting. When I was reading it, I was like, I wonder where you can define the transition into the, the third act. And I think we're kind of mm. right in that, uh, in this book right now, because we solved the last great mystery, which if you remember, I mean, at least, yeah, at least two books now, we've been like, what's the final Horcrux? Because you could pretty much map out what the fi- what the Horcruxes were at the end of Half-Blood Prince, but we didn't know what the final Horcrux was, which... Of course, we have all kinds of additional answers given in this book, but the diadem is the last of the founder's items. And then we learn the story of how it came to be in Albania, you know, all these details that are like highly relevant. And then we go straight into battle, which sort of feels like an Avengers movie type thing. We're like, we're going to answer the final mysteries and then we're going to duke it out. And that's pretty much how this goes. Of course, we've got chapters in the rest of the book moving forward that are much different tone, right? Harry walking into the forest, Harry at King's Cross, etc. But like the most, for the most part, it's just battle yeah. from here on out. Yeah. Just kind of an interesting thing I caught. Like it feels like, okay, we're definitely in the final act. This is it. And we get all those characters, all those loose ends being tied up. This is where you see the masterful weaving of this huge universe coming together, which I think hopefully people listening will get some of these analogies, but like Game of Thrones, who knows? It's too big and there doesn't seem to be any way to pull it all together. What are some other ones that have done? There's lots of, you know, when you when you write a big universe like this, mm-hmm. it can be hard to wrap it up. And these chapters do a really nice job of that. Right. Or like in game. And yeah, for sure. Okay. Do we want to move on to chapter 30? One more thing. I just wanted to give a shout out to Hagrid. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so poor Hagrid, like, or not even poor Hagrid, but like Harry, he's like, oh, Harry, how can I help you? But then Fang runs off and he's like, oh, sorry, you're trying to save the world. I gotta go, you know. <laughs> Gotta go help my creature, you know? Which honestly, I get that though. Because if my dog was like running off, I'd be like, oh, sorry, I'll catch you on the flip side. Hopefully we win. (laughs) Yeah, I I was gonna say in response to that, I think, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that Hagrid doesn't have more more of a character arc in the whole, really the whole series. Mm. But but then I'm like, but he's also really consistent. He's a very consistent character. We know how he's gonna react in these different situations every single time. And so... I guess I'm okay with Hagrid's story the way it is because it's just so much like him. You know, from start to finish, he first he's loving, you know, caring for Harry, delivering him to the Dursleys, Norbert, Fang, all these different creatures, Buckbeak throughout the books. And then, of course, at the end, he's still going to be caring about these creatures that he's always, always been that way. It's just It's just his nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I think... Hagrid doesn't need this huge arc because he's just solid. Like, he's already a great guy. He already, you know, we, we learn things about him. You know, he, of course, gets a half-brother and we get to learn about him being a giant and how that's, you know, like, hush-hush. And he dates someone and he's nervous in that way. But it's almost like he just got to kind of be not normal, but he does get to experience normal things, you know, dating and having these little small things that happen, which do interweave with the whole world as far as, you know, all the character, all the little creatures he finds end up coming up in the book and playing an important part. But overall, yeah, he just gets to be pretty solid, just like a solid, something that gets to stay the same for Harry almost. Right. And that's nice because so many of the characters change along with Harry and the reader, as a reader, we were changing too. Right. Yeah. They, so many characters, we find all these dark secrets about them, but like not so much Hagrid, you know, he's just, he's Hagrid. Yep. Cool. Okay, 
jumping back to chapter 30, which is called The Sacking of Severus Snape. Basically, this chapter starts with Harry in the Ravenclaw common room being attacked by Electo Caro. Luna Lovegood saves him with a stunning spell, which I loved, of course. Um, Amy Cuss, Electo's brother, tries to come in, but McGonagall steps in and um, eventually stops him, ties them both up. Harry lets her know, hey, Voldemort's coming. The castle's under attack. Essentially, this is McGonagall's chapter, in my opinion. And he has to find uh, one of the... He has to find something. He doesn't tell her what. And then you find Dumbledore's army, the Order of the Phoenix. They all come to the castle to fight. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) The final sentence is, just for a little context, because it won't make sense without it, Voldemort is standing at the gates of Hogwarts. And the sentence reads... He was possessed of that cold, cruel sense of purpose that preceded murder. Mm. Very interesting. I think she uses very similar language when she finally walks us through the attack on the Potters, but we'll we'll get to that in a future episode. This is this is kind of is a McGonagall chapter. I think you're right on that. I was nodding along as you said that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but a lot of yeah. this has to do with McGonagall. Yeah, talking about wrapping characters up, I feel like we they're kind of wrapping her up, right? Like we're getting to see more of her power and get to see how much she does, in fact, care about her students and care about Harry. Yeah, yeah, we kind of learn. I feel like we learn a lot about her yeah. in this chapter. I'm um, including that, although I would always assume that Dumbledore did talk to her a lot and confide in her, but maybe not as much as I had assumed. Yeah. She doesn't really know what Harry's doing. No, she doesn't. She has no sense at all. And and I think Harry asks her about the diadem, but everyone's just like, and I say everyone, I mean McGonagall, Flitwick, everyone's like, nobody knows where it is. Like, what do you need that for? That's not helpful. And they don't have any sense of context. Like, this is why I'm, this is why Harry's asking. Is he looking for an item to defeat Voldemort? What? <laughs> like, Flitwick's like, a little wisdom wouldn't hurt, but I don't think it'll help you defeat Voldemort. And he's like, that's not why I need it. <laughs> just let me, just tell me where it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I do want to, I do want to go back to the love she has for her students. One of my favorite lines in this chapter is, why would Harry Potter try and get inside Ravenclaw Tower? Potter belongs in my house. I just yes. love that. I can just hear it in Maggie Smith's beautiful Scottish accent. And mm. it makes me very warm in my heart for, for her and for Gryffindor, even though I'm not a Gryffindor. Right. No, same, same. I agree. It did give you this, you know, I don't feel like Harry belongs a lot of places, but it's it's McGonagall's moment to show him that she does, you know, essentially love her and love her students and... Yeah, yeah, that was a very, very beautiful moment, especially mm-hmm. at the end of a book where things are very sad and things are, you know, kind of ramping up. Mm-hmm. I think that's just why this this book is so very emotional in the final few chapters is you're riding this roller coaster of emotions. I did want to point out very shortly thereafter, uh, Harry defends mm-hmm. McGonagall against uh, Anicus and he uses Crucio on him, which again, the Cruciatus curse is an unforgivable curse. So we're going to just, Harry's used it before. <laughs> goes to show he is in some ways that hot-headed mm-hmm. kind of young man that Dumbledore is worried would get distracted by the Deathly Hallows because when he gets very angry, he doesn't actually behave in a way that's according to wizarding law. But it was interesting that he did it then because he obviously was filled with his own pride. Like, oh, I'm going to defend you. And so he uses that. But I would argue it's not because he's a hot-headed kid. Wouldn't we attribute some of that anger to the part of Voldemort that's inside of him? Absolutely. Possibly? Yeah, that's a good hypothesis. We're going to give Harry that so that I don't feel so bad about him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But again, there are little moments of levity. So Luna, um, at the very beginning of the chapter, she stuns the other Caro 
and says, I've never stunned anyone except in our DA lessons. It was a lot noisier than I thought it would be. <laughs> because if you might recall, when they were doing that, they were using cushions. So when someone fell, they hit a cushion. And it's like, well, yeah, a human body falling on the floor. I don't know about <laughs> you, but I fainted in my life. It is a very violent thing to fall on the floor unexpectedly. Um, but Luna's sounding yes. mildly interesting. It's very, very Luna, very Luna reaction. Yeah, you know, she has another moment too, where uh, I think Carrie says, Voldemort, she says, oh, are we using his name again? Just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, Luna, we're using his name. <laughs> oh, I think we talked at some point about Snape's magical abilities, maybe in the chapter, the chapter and episode. Yes. Um, he, can, he can fly now, um, which is something he learns from Voldemort. So though Snape is behave, is playing the spy, even though he's not really spying in this whole book at this point, I mean, he's working with Vold- or with Dumbledore's portrait, but he's not really uh, reporting Dumbledore the same way. Anyway, my point is that he's still learning magic from Voldemort. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think we talked about it before, but I just think it's interesting how powerful he is. I don't know if it's not talked about enough or I just didn't notice it enough, but he is arguably, you know, I don't know, in the top five at least. Like, he's very, very powerful. And now he can fly. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. I don't even think, uh, I don't think Dumbledore could fly because he and Harry use brooms when they come back from cave in the end of Half-Blood Prince, which reminds me... We need to do our quiz question for our Gilderoy Lockhart style Ooh. quiz. And that's a perfect segue because today the answer to the question is, uh, you know, what's our favorite book? So what's your favorite book, Brie? Uh, definitely number six. So The Half-Blood Prince. I think that is the one where just a lot of interesting stuff happened. Book five was like a little, a little hard to read, a little boring where book six you just you get a lot of action yeah I am the same actually I love Half-Blood Prince I always loved it I loved it in part because it is it is the book that focuses on the Slytherins all the Slytherin men get really big Mm. roles and it is explaining our villains it's kind of unpacking them for us Uh, I find that to be fascinating I uh, degree in psychology and so that kind of thing has always interested me but yeah it's nice it's the same and actually I had to flip through just as a quick sidebar and I'll come back to the quiz. Mm-hmm. I had to flip through Order of the Phoenix. Okay. And I'm really excited to go through that one backward. I think it's going to be really interesting because it is kind of like a long slog. I think it'll be interesting when we get to do it from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I, I welcome that. Me too. It's been really interesting. So, okay, going back to the quiz. The point is, we are doing a quiz at the end of the season. You need to have as many right answers as you can. So if you are listening and you're listening to all our episodes, in each one, we mention some sort of trivia about ourselves related to Harry Potter, because it's the Gilderoy Lockhart quiz. We get to be a little narcissistic about it. So in this week's episode, we are talking about our favorite book. And both of our favorite books, you only have to remember one, is Half-Blood Prince. That's it. So let's move on back into the chapter. So how about McGonagall having three Patronuses pop out of there? I know. Nowhere? That's cool. We have not seen that magic before. Um, we've seen mm-hmm. people use their Patronuses in this way. Arthur Weasley used his to communicate once they flee from the wedding. Kingsley uses his to notify them that the ministry has fallen. We've definitely we've seen mm-hmm. oh, Tonks. Doesn't Tonks use hers that way once to send a message up to mm-hmm. Hogwarts when she delivers Harry? So we've seen Patronus is used as messengers, but not three at one time. (laughs) A Patronus uses a lot of positive sentiment. So I don't know if maybe Mm -hmm. McGonagall's feeling just like really heartwarmed and proud of her (laughs) Harry jumping to her defense or what's going on, but she's able to cast three Patronuses to like go do little messenger duties. Yeah, she really she really stepped up in this chapter. Um, You know, she's obviously a natural leader, but she like, bam, okay, I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. Like she starts telling everyone what to do, start rounding people up. And I also love that she told Harry, like, 
I don't know if you know this, but as teachers, we're pretty good at magic. I think we can protect the castle. Yeah. Like, we got this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. The other thing that happens very close in this chapter to that is when Slughorn basically says, like, should we really even try and stand up to Voldemort? And McGonagall's basically like, you're going to be there. Like, go get your students. It's time for you guys to take a side. And of course, most of them leave, but like, show up, get get with it. And Slughorn actually does return in the final, final battle. So we do see him come back. The other thing I I noted it, and it's on, it's because it's on the same page is Harry, like I said before, this, this moving into the final act where all the answers are given, he's still trying to find the Horcrux in this chapter. He doesn't even know what it is. Which is sort of crazy if you think about it, that we're just like so close to the end of the book and we still don't know what this magical object is, which is critical for resolution of the story. I mean, it gets resolved really quickly in the next chapter, but I, I think it's interesting that, you know, with from one chapter to another, all that information is revealed and suddenly Harry can be unstuck and keep working on this quest that he's on. Yeah, which is another way that everything starts coming together because the reason he ends up knowing where it's at is because of, you know, a previous book where he had put the Half-Blood Prince, where he had put the book in the Room of Requirements and remember seeing that tiara. You know, that's, she really wrapped that up and kind of brought that in, which J.K. Rowling is just really good at doing that. Yeah, yeah. Same thing goes for in this chapter, Flitwick says something like, no one in living memory can remember where it is. Mm -hmm. And he remembers that in the next chapter being like, no one in living memory meaning that maybe dead people know where it is. And that's how he finds the great lady. (laughs) So it's like all these little gems that she's dropped. She's able to scoop them all up into this conclusion that makes sense. And I've always loved that about these books, that they're so consistent. And the details that are brought up at one point end up being relevant, but never extraneously. Like it's not, it's always exactly what you need. I really like that. I've liked that since the very first book when, there are things in book five that relate to book one and book four that relate to book three. And it just always works building on itself. Yeah. What about uh, the Ravenclaw room, like the common room? They talk about it a little bit. You know, I do love Luna. So I partially think, oh, I could be in Ravenclaw. But like you have to answer a riddle every time you have to get into that common room. Like I can picture like young Brie with like sweaty palms all day thinking about like, oh my God, what is the riddle going to be? Am I going to get it? Am I going to look stupid? Like, no, thank you. Just like, let me in. I can remember a password very easily. Thank you, Gryffindor. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is actually sort of bridging between the next chapter 29 and this one, because they kind of like arrive into the common room right as the chapter is changing. Yeah. I love this common room. This, this makes me want to be a Ravenclaw. They're up in one of the towers. It's this beautiful (laughs) starry skied room with like library books all around. It's like Belle from the Beauty and the Beast, if she could design a dream room, it might be this. I do worry yeah. about the answering a question, especially I had just, I literally was just looking at my note about the question that McGonagall answers that I'm still sort of confused about, which is where do vanished objects go into non-being that is to say everything? I couldn't answer that. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I did cheat. I did Google it because I don't know. I feel like it's very brave and cool, though. Like, if you don't know the answer, you find it. So I Googled it. So basically, the idea is vanished objects still hold energy. So even if you made them disappear, the energy that they were holding is still in the room, in the area, which means they're inside everything. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I, that makes sense. But ah, I don't know that I could. I couldn't come up with that. Oh, I would have. I wouldn't have gotten there. <laughs> I'm like, I got to run to the <laughs> library and look it up in a book, and I'll be back. And hopefully, that hasn't. The question hasn't changed by then. <laughs> by the time I get back. <laughs> Yeah, that would be me. That would be me. Oh, so funny. So my last note was about this, again, this levity that 
J.K. Rowling brings to the scene when Percy arrives in the room of requirement. And... Okay, that's what mine was too. Yeah, it's super <laughs> awkward where Fleur and Lupin try and like create a little diversion where Lupin, Fleur asks Lupin how Teddy is doing. And it's like a couple paragraphs, uh, including Lupin getting out a picture while the Weasleys are just kind of staring at each other. <laughs> and then I was a fool, Percy roared so loudly that Lupin nearly dropped the photograph. Does a really nice job of handling that tension of this character that's sort of gone the way of Voldemort in that direction, being power hungry and abandoning his family, coming back in the last hour to help them. Yeah, that, that actually was mine. I absolutely love that scene. It's so funny because Floor immediately is like, oh, how's Teddy? And Lupin's like, why are you asking me right? He's like, oh, oh, right, right. This is really awkward. We should say something. <laughs> yeah, really good comedic timing. Very, very funny. Very, very funny. <laughs> that happens a lot in this book, which I think is why it's able to kind of span age groups too. There's a, you know, there's a lot of heaviness, but throughout the book, you do get those moments of levity that keep you going. Yeah, I wonder too, I mean, you and I are both writers. And so I think a lot about like the editing process, like, was there a note from the editor, like, please add something in this chapter that'll make people smile, like we need a little bit of levity here. And so then she would, you know, maybe brainstorm, like, what are different things, some of these characters that are all on the stage right now, what could they do that would be a little Mm -hmm. bit funny, but I still got to get them through this really heavy stuff to get to the the conclusion. Yeah, yeah, that that actually sounds really fun, right? Like, I can kind of picture you have to like, I don't know, my process when I'm writing fiction is I kind of have to like close my eyes and let the characters kind of do their thing in my mind. And then, yeah, that would be kind of fun. Like, okay, who would be doing something funny? Like I have to picture all these people and go into their minds and like what would be going through their heads. Especially when in this particular scene with the Weasleys, your your first assumption would be it'd be Fred and George would crack a joke, but they don't, yeah. right? And they can't, like that's, wow. they're the ones tied up in the emotion. So like, who else is in the room? Who can I work with? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because- I don't write fiction, so I don't have characters doing things. <laughs> they, I write about things that have happened or things that I might want to happen. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. Very well handled. I love that it does describe little Teddy, I believe. Uh, a tiny baby mm, with a tuft yeah. of turquoise hair. Mm, poor Teddy. <laughs> yeah, that's all I had for these two chapters, although they were... They were intense and we did learn a lot. They were. Yeah. We got the final answer, basically. We know the, all the, we know all the Horcruxes. Mm-hmm. We destroyed two of them, right? Because Hufflepuff's Cup and the Diadem get destroyed. We get to see the alliances forming as we go into the final battle, things we've already talked about in the previous episodes. But now we get to, in our world, in yours and my world, Brie, and our listeners, we get to go take <laughs> a step back and see how we got to this point. So in the next episode, we are going to be covering mm-hmm. chapters... 27, 28, and 29. I should have read that in a different order. I should have read it 29, 28, 27, because we're going backwards. So that'll be The Lost Diadem, Mm. The Missing Mirror, and The Final Hiding Place. So we will be back Mm -hmm. next week with a new episode. We hope you've enjoyed this one. If you have, we would love to hear from you. Also, if you haven't, we would still love to hear from you. You can reach (laughs) us on social media at Pod, right? Correct. And then uh, you can also email us. So the email is podcast at follow the butterflies, or you can visit our podcast page at follow the butterflies.com slash podcast. Yep. If you don't mind, hop on to your podcast app, whatever that may be, um, whether it's Spotify or Apple, if you would like to give us a review, we love five stars. That is our favorite one. And if you have time, please write a little something on it um, just to let us know that you are here and uh, subscribe because that does help as well. And we want you to be informed. So whenever an episode comes out, you'll know. You'll be the first to know. Yep. 
And as a reminder, our very first bonus episode dropped between these two episodes. So if you missed it, there is another episode in there. Um, We did a sort of reaction, quick reaction podcast to the 20th anniversary special that just ran earlier this week as of when the episode is out. And uh, I will say, you said, if you don't mind, leave us a review. I'd say, if you do mind, I don't care, but give us your feedback. We want to know. We're here. We want it to be a conversation. We want you to join us. So even if you're just discovering this podcast now and you don't want to start at the very back of the book, jump in. That's the cool part about this concept that we came up with. You do not mm-hmm. have to start reading at the at the beginning to know what's going on because we're reading it backwards too. So every time we pick up the book, we're immersing ourselves in an unusually like in media res experience. So join us uh, 29, 28 and 27. That's where we'll be next time. And we would love for you to do it yourself as well. Get a used book, go to the library, get it on the library online, follow along and do it with us. It's actually quite fun. And if you have anything that you caught or anything you would like to comment about this episode or past ones, uh, we gave you our contact information before. So please reach out, let us know. Yep, sounds good. All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next week. All right, see ya. Bye.